Hello and welcome to Eating Between the Lines. I am your host, Therese Martinez, and I am so happy to have you here. If you want to untangle yourself from diet culture conditioning and get appropriate, actionable options to nourish your unique life and body, I'm going to dive deep into the nuanced spectrum of health to help you figure out what to prioritize in your journey without getting trapped in the extreme ideology of health optimization or total complacency. I am here to help you apply the science effectively, not rigidly, and get you feeling better in your body and mind. Here is how to eat between the lines. Welcome back to Eating Between the Lines. I am your host, Therese Martinez. Happy to have you here. Today we are talking about the why behind what you do in regards to food intake. So this isn't like a a chat around motivation or willpower or discipline. It's not even about why diets don't work, which is a topic I do like to get into often. But this is really a reflection I find absolutely imperative to go through to make lasting change. This is something I talk about with every single patient and client that comes in to see me. There are so, so many reasons why we do what we do when it comes to food intake. It's so much more than eat this, not that, right? And I've said this before, and I think, you know, people kind of understand this, which is why many times when we try to make changes with our food intake, it just doesn't really last or it is overwhelming or daunting. And we lack really the understanding of why largely due to the fact that it is also very individualized. And so the evolution of my understanding of behavior in relation to nutrition, diet, and lifestyle has really evolved over the years. Growing up, I felt like it was really eat this, not that. And it kind of led to a lot of misconceptions around food. It led me to feel like I didn't have enough willpower or discipline or I lacked the right motivation. I created an understanding that, you know, calories in, calories out was the best way to manipulate the body and that was the best way to drive health. And I also had ideas around more whole foods, less processed, and again, watching calories and basic principles, you know, that I think many people in the health and wellness world would still kind of get behind. However, that road actually led me to a lot of disorder. So based off the fact that I was not equipped with appropriate knowledge I was wired to put loads of pressure on myself and these behaviors. I was fed information that scared me into not eating healthy because I would gain weight or be unhealthy. This is like diet and wellness culture to the extreme, right? Or actually just to (laughs) in general. Plus like things that you're told you're not supposed to eat are wildly palatable and appealing and somewhat hard to stop consuming, particularly when it is mindless and you're feeling like you shouldn't. 
it creates a massive disconnect, right? It ultimately leads to feeling out of control, more likely to binge, and resulting in a very familiar guilt-shame cycle that leads to compensatory behavior, you know, large, oftentimes around restriction thereafter. And so this begins the very large disconnect between body trust, hunger, health, and essentially a person's own knowing. And I want to give a little bit of this background because I find it to be very beneficial for folks to understand why I came to these three pillars that I talk about with clients every single time I see someone. So before I get into that, just a little bit more background here. So I studied nutrition and fitness to kind of understand food and fitness and wellness a little bit more. But honestly, it didn't really help. There was still so much around numbers macronutrients and calories and calculations. And it just felt still so very rule-based and numbers-based. It didn't help with the connection, right, between myself and my body. It didn't help with my own knowing. I think a lot of research into my own behavior and disorder led me to discover more and more about willpower and behavior around food as well. And really interesting research, honestly, And I've continued to look into this over many years, you know, trying to understand myself better and better and why things were not clicking for me and or for for people that I would try to help too, because they would experience similar things. I would give recommendations. They would be really challenging to follow for the individual, even if I was trying to meet them where they were at. There would be something missing. So over the course of many years, the breakdown has become more and more clear to me on the why this is. So I have developed these three pillars that I like to discuss and dissect in initial sessions and then, you know, thereafter in follow-up sessions and through my programs. And these pillars are number one you have your psychological pillar. This is where we investigate the seeds planted and watered throughout the course of your life to create the knowledge base and relationship with food that you have. So this can be super convoluted and it can also be relatively less tangled than others, right? So essentially... This is really investigating the influences your own psyche has on your behavior. I'm going to get into a little bit more detail with this in a second. So you have the psychological pillar. We have the physiological pillar. This is looking at the state of your body. You know, we're looking at the inputs and outputs and stressors and considerations around genetics and lab values, things like that, digestive symptoms, symptom pictures in general to understand why your body is functioning in the way that it is. And because this also drives behavior. And then the third pillar looks at your knowledge, skills, and abilities. This is what I kind of consider 
sort of like the meat and potatoes of what people think when they come in to see a dietitian, right? This is sort of the application of recommendations. It's the me meeting a patient where they are at with their time, resources, skill sets, and figuring out how to build those to create the change in behavior the person needs for their overarching goals. Okay, so let's dig into this a little bit. So the psychological pillar, some examples around the wiring of your psychology around food. One might be, you know, if you're part of the clean your plate club when you are younger, this is kind of looking at influences with parents, uh, family dynamics, peers, media influences of food. It can be related to health. It can be related to body. A lot of times when we do see it related to body can get connected then to acceptance, love, and worth. And that can lead to a lot then thereafter in childhood, young adulthood, and that drives a lot of behavior, right? So even if this is subtle or if it is very prevalent and prominent with folks, it is still wiring, right? So there can still be a seed. Maybe that seed hasn't been watered to the degree for some individuals than others, but it can still be there. So that's an, an, an example of wiring. We also get messages maybe that connect with food getting moralized, right? So this food is good, this food is bad. And though many times people don't necessarily directly associate that with I am good or I am bad by eating this food, you know, in a literal sense, I hear it all the time, right? Oh, so good last weekend or I was so bad last weekend. And it can seem innocent, but it can actually have pretty substantial and significant effects on a person's relationship with food and honestly themselves, even if they don't necessarily consciously recognize it. And so if you think about the first time you hear about a food being good or a food being bad, like when was that? How how often did you hear your mom talking about being good or bad or or parents friends or peers or siblings friends or things like that i mean again the watering of these seeds is pretty substantial if a person thinks about it at least like in my life i know it has been and i think really reflecting on it we can all see definite definite watering of these seeds. And again, the degrees vary, but I think it's just interesting to think about, right? So, and then how you pull that information with you throughout the course of your life. If foods are good and bad from the get-go, if you are not supposed to eat certain foods because they are, some are good and some are bad, it naturally puts these foods on pedestals to create this should and shouldn't narrative, right? And it starts to create the disconnect that we have from our body. And it can be super duper challenging. And parenting, man, it is a world I I am not particularly in directly. I have no children of my own. And navigating the world of caring for kids and working to promote health without compromising relationship with food is so challenging. And I see that with my 
parent patience. Absolutely. And I'm not trying to, you know, shame or guilt anyone if they are raising children and having a hard time with the verbiage. I also think that having some awareness around how a person can be impacted is really helpful though. And there are so many resources out there now that can really guide folks into helping raise more intuitive eaters and help people kind of develop a relationship with food too. And happy to connect you to some of those resources if you feel so inclined to reach out. Other considerations with connecting food to worth, right? So again, going back to the shoulding. So if certain food is connected to one's, you know, lovability or worth, if we are considering this in the realm of shoulding on oneself because of health, maybe, I think that there can be connections to what it means if you are not choosing the foods that are quote unquote healthful for you. So I hear this a lot. I myself have had a lot of these narratives where, oh man, I am not eating, you know, X, Y, or Z fruits, vegetables, whole foods today. I am going out to fast food or whatever it is. That means that I don't have discipline. I don't have, you know, willpower. I'm lazy. I don't care about my health. And all of those things can be continued thought patterns for people and reiterated over and over and over again. And especially in the wellness and, you know, scene we see right now, that is oftentimes what people are saying. And there is just a lot of challenge in this. I think that many people mean well when they are trying to help folks with their behavior, But if we aren't really seeing how damaging, shaming, and guilting people into change is, then we're really not seeing the change actually happen, right? And we're just hurting the relationship with food, which can just feed into such cycles. If we connect the worth to the other big one, body image, or, um, you know, aesthetics and attractiveness, we then see this big connection to a, for a need to manipulate the body to appear a certain way. And that's how we gain worthiness and lovability. And the way we do that is by manipulation of diet and lifestyle and exercise. And while this is just very unfortunate messaging in many regards, it can feed into this element of fat phobia, which again, just pulls us out of our own body and own knowing. It takes away from health promoting behaviors and it shifts the motive into wanting to manipulate the body for love and acceptance because bodies that are outside of this realm of societal acceptance and thin privilege have all of these other ramifications and consequences associated. And so there is pressure that many people feel to manipulate their body. And in a way that is around food and exercise, that then may really affect their relationship with food and ultimately not be very health-promoting. So... 
one can see a lot of these layers, right, with the psychological pillar. I also see uh, when people go on diets, they can find elements of success, quote unquote, if they end up losing weight. What I see this do for folks is that they take the quote, quote, success and correlate it to the behavior that they were implementing, right? Kind of makes sense. However, if that behavior is associated with restriction, so caloric deficits where they feel super duper hungry, maybe when they're eating food that is not very palatable, you know, when the diets are restrictive and they're not able to eat the foods that they really enjoy, and or if they're needing to completely omit certain food groups, like in the ketogenic diet, and they have to go super low carb, but say that they have success. What does this teach them? It teaches them that that's what they have to do in order to have whatever success that they want, right? In the in the realm of manipulation of body. And that in and of itself is extremely wiring, right? We now have an association. I see this a lot with folks. Um, I have a patient that right now that has been her whole life been recording everything that goes into her body. She started doing bodybuilding competitions, I think like fitness competitions in her 20s. And I don't know if you know how challenging those diets are, but they are rather restrictive and they are very strict as well. But she found a lot of success when she followed these diets because they manipulated her body in the way that she wanted. But now this is 30 years later she continues to record her food in the hopes that it will still provide the same type of benefit and effect if she just manipulates these numbers better. And we have seen that it is not the case. And that actually a lot of with this patient, there was potential compromise of her health and metabolism through the diet cycling that she was experiencing throughout her 30s and 40s because of this constant desire to go back to this restrictive approach. So we can take some of these experiences and then we hone in on what we gained from them and then connect that gain to needing to do that forevermore, right? This was the solution this time. That means I probably need to do that again. And it's just not the case. So when we're also thinking about another layer of the psychological pillar, this kind of, it can kind of be physiological as well, but we go into mindful and mindless eating, So I say psychological because when we start to put foods on pedestals and when we start to restrict our intake, and if we've been doing this for many years, honestly, too, it can lead us to not feeling in very much control over certain foods and being around certain foods. And many times what I see more often than not, honestly, is that these foods are consumed in a very mindless fashion. I mean, there are a lot of other considerations around how a person sets themselves up. But if we have elements of restriction, if we have fear of foods developed over the years, 
and we start to consume these foods again, or very, you know, intermittently, maybe it's just around a birthday or holidays or things like that. And we just say, well, I can't have, I can't have chips around, I'll eat the whole bag, or I can't have cake around, I'll eat the whole cake or whatever the food is. Many times we see that there has been this development of mindless eating with the food. And so that in and of itself can create a lot of disconnect with a person's hunger cues and experience with the food. And it can lead to overconsumption of the food because we are not really present with the intake. But over years and years of engaging with the food in this fashion, of course we can feel out of control with it. It makes perfect sense, right? We uh, feel like we can never have it, so we want to have it all at one time. We feel like we shouldn't have it, so there's an element of trying to consume as much as we can because we have to then take it out for X amount of time thereafter. And so we tend to kind of inhale the food. So this feeds into the the issue around mindless eating and the association that, again, we have with these certain foods, which feeds into that psychological pillar and considerations we have to make when we are understanding our relationship with food. I think it's also helpful to, you know, kind of understand that this is all a range, right? And we, not everybody experiences the same thing and to the same degree, but I really do believe that there is wiring with all of us and that we all have things to reflect on and investigate with our own relationship with food and how we, how we consume food too. Just to kind of touch back one more thing, as I'm realizing I didn't mention this, you know, I talked about that whole relationship with the foods that you feel out of control with. I just want to touch on that actually being connected to something extremely well-researched and prevalent in the nutrition world that is called the binge restrict cycle. And I think that this is also helpful to understand that this has ranges as well, where a person's one person's binge is going to be different than another person's binge. One person's way of restriction is going to be different than another. So it doesn't mean that you're just entirely restricting uh, food in general all the time. It can mean that it is a certain type of food, a certain macronutrient, and it can lead to different types of binges. And whether or not that that binge looks like eating a whole leave of Oreos or a whole cake, or maybe it's a whole pizza plus a tub of ice cream plus even more. Or maybe it's just your own binge is having five cookies or three. It just, everyone's different, right? But the, the whole idea around it is the energy behind it. And that is what I want people to understand with a lot of nutrition and behavior. We're trying to understand the energy and the energetics behind intake and investigate origins for that energy so that we can start to dissect and combat some of the wiring that has dictated that behavior. So the physiological pillar I like to touch on here because 
We also have things with our own bodies that can literally drive us to want certain foods, right? So I find that this happens pretty apparently when we have blood sugar swings, you know, if we are imbalanced with our intake. So essentially, if we aren't really balancing our meals, if we're going a really long time between meals, if we're not really consuming sufficient food in the first half of the day, and then we eat a ton in the evening and we don't really know why, many times we're we're just not seeing the intake being very well balanced. So whether that's in a breakfast and we're not really seeing a very well balanced breakfast of, you know, maybe some carbs, some fat, some protein, and it leads us to have an energy crash at lunch, but, or prior to lunch when we have coffee and then we have a salad for lunch and then maybe we're really hungry in between lunch and dinner, or maybe we're so busy that we forget to eat. And then We either have a snack between lunch and dinner, or maybe we have, I don't know, more coffee. (laughs) I see that a lot. And then we get home and feel famished and feel frustrated because we don't want to be consuming all this food in the evening, right? And so then we relate it back to, oh gosh, it's just willpower and discipline. And I, my issue is that I just eat so much at night. I just, I just get so hungry at night. How do I just not eat at night? Um, even after dinner and it's like, okay, what was the intake like throughout the day? was your body just hungry? Did you just not feed yourself? Did you not nourish yourself in an appropriate fashion, right? Sometimes we can consume, you know, calorically an amount that might be appropriate for our body, but the nutrition and the nutrients are a little bit skewed and lacking. So, If we are, say, eating a really low-carb diet and we just are craving sweets at the end of the day, perhaps it's our body just kind of saying, hey, you ate sufficiently, but not with the carbs that we needed. We need a little bit more of the carbohydrates to really function more optimally. Or maybe it's protein or maybe it's fat, right? It can be a lot of different things. Maybe it's a specific nutrient. But if we're not consuming a diverse intake of food in a appropriately balanced way with macro and micronutrients, our bodies are going to be reaching out. And I see this a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot with patterns of intake and just setting ourselves up to be overly hungry or feel like we need to catch up on food. And then we have patterns of consuming a lot and then restricting. It's that whole binge restrict cycle too, just in a different kind of scheme. And so that's huge. Other types of physiological responses can be with sleep deprivation and stress. Both of these provoke a cortisol response. And, you know, if we think about sleep, it makes sense if we get poor sleep and we just feel really hungry the next day and throughout the day because our body's like, yeah, I'm going to need something to give me a little boost here because I did not get the, su- the sufficient and substantial sleep that I needed to function well. So that's why we have carb cravings and sugar cravings when we don't get very much sleep because that's our body's preferred source of energy. It's fast, it's quick, and it hits. And so that makes sense, right? If we understand that, we can make choices accordingly. It's that whole concept of being intentional and proactive versus reactive and impulsive. I'm not here to say that we're always going to get the 
best sleep ever, but I am saying that if we don't, we can actually have a little bit more understanding of how our body may respond. Similarly with stress, you know, um, stress is going to provoke a little bit more of that cortisol response and, and food is a way we feel better. It's a sure thing. It, certain foods, especially, right? Like there is a physiological response that we connect with certain foods that make us feel good. There's an association. And so it helps to understand that because we can start to make choices accordingly, right? And we can start to develop other coping mechanisms, other self-care habits, if we are constantly going to food for as the only way to feel better and cope, that's going to be problematic. It is totally normal to utilize food as part of your coping mechanisms, though, if you so please. It's all about the energy that comes behind the behavior, though. So if there is guilt, shame, rumination, considerations of like, I don't know, anxiety around the intake, That's something to think about. If you are going into, say, consume, I don't know, for some reason I have cupcakes on my mind. Maybe if a person is like, I am really stressed out and I really want a cupcake and I know that I am stressed and I'm going to a cupcake and they eat it and they are mindful and they enjoy it and they then feel better, you know, temporarily or not, whatever, and then they're able to move on. That's one type of probably help, more healthful approach to utilizing food of coping versus feeling stressed out after work, swinging by a fast food joint, getting a bunch of different food and desserts and inhaling it in the car, trying to feel better, getting home, feeling like crap, talking shit to yourself and saying, well, screw it. And then, you know, going through the cupboard and finding anything else that you can consume to kind of help you feel better. And then feeling like super guilty and thereafter and icky. And then going into the next day with, you know, potential guilt ridden, shameful thought patterns and narratives that maybe make you restrict thereafter. I mean, it could also even be like, coming back home after a stressful day, grabbing a bag of chips and popping in front of the TV. I mean, that's also probably going to be nice. I mean, I definitely like a good veg out space out time, my own self, though I don't really like the feeling I have after I have overconsumed food that doesn't really make me feel very good. So that's why having the intentionality can be, can be beneficial. We also have considerations around underlying health issues, right? So if there is GI distress, so gastrointestinal distress, if I, there's, there are folks that have IBS or um, you know, digestive issues, if there is bloating or constipation or diarrhea, and there are certain foods that absolutely have impacted symptoms in that in those realms, those are definitely considerations that we would have to look at when we're looking at the physiological pillar of what dictates your food intake, right? So that would be really important to understand so that we can take action to help resolve these issues so that you can get a little bit more in tune with your body and make make choices that are aligned with your health, right? Um, other physiological 
considerations is something called like interoceptive awareness. So how well can you gauge your hunger and fullness cues? How impacted are those from how your body just naturally communicates with you, how you hear your body, feel your body. Those are really important. I I think it's not really given enough credit and because people just don't trust themselves, right? I think your palate is also something to consider. I talked about the evolution of your palate uh, earlier on, and this is something to consider, honestly. People will crave and desire certain types of foods, many times hyperpalatable, high fat, high salt, high sugar types of foods. And if there is not really an exposure to that type of palatability with maybe more nutrient dense foods, usually hyperpalatable foods are more associated with like, I don't know, ultra processed foods. Uh, I would say they would fall into the category of being less nutritious um, for most people, which I think is kind of inappropriate verbiage, um, but it may have just lower nutrient density than some other other foods, but maybe things like, you know, French fries and burgers and ice cream and pizza, those types of palatable foods, chips, um, donuts, you know, those those foods that that have that pow <laughs> of stimuli in the mouth. And so if a person doesn't really have a lot of exposure of that type of stimuli with more healthful options, there can be a drive towards those foods. Again, it kind of has to do with like that response of, of dopamine and the feel good. Like maybe it's not a person is going towards those foods because they are stressed or coping with an emotion, but they're just going to it because they like it because it's a sure thing of like, yeah, it just tastes really good. I had a patient that said that she didn't want to cook because she didn't know how it was going to turn out. So she would just want to go out to eat because it was a sure thing. Like she knew the consistency of the the palatability of those foods. And so if she had to cook and she didn't really know how that was going to turn out, it was like not worth it to do that. And so I think it's helpful to also get an idea of where your palate is at, like what type of foods maybe need to be more incorporated in and how in order to expand the palate and like evolve it potentially into more of an ability to have some of these these other healthful foods. And lastly here, the last pillar, knowledge, skills, and abilities. So this is really important to understand because I think this comes with the application of recommendations. And many times when it comes to diets and meal plans and things recommended for folks, there is an assumption that people just have the time, the resources, the skill set to just apply whatever is recommended. And I think this is where a lot of those more general and less like uniquely catered to the individual approaches can find a lot of problems because everybody is different in this realm, right? And this is also problematic because if a person gets these recommendations and cannot follow through, then they feel like they're in the wrong. And it's just, again, inaccurate, not true. So with knowledge, skills, and abilities, this is where we develop skill sets. It's where we work on education. This is kind of part of the rewiring process of the psychological pillar as well. 
but we are understanding how to apply appropriate knowledge for the individual into their actual intake that works for them. So there's troubleshooting of obstacles. There is overcoming challenges to create more consistency. It is titrating intake to figure out what actually works for an individual in person. It's making recommendations and seeing if they work. It's taking the person into consideration with their finances, with their skill set, with their family, all of those things. Like we have to look at this. Kind of mentioned this, but really honing in on a person's skill set is very important. So if they are interested in becoming a better cook and or spending more time with meal creation, planning, prepping, developing the skill set to be you know, efficient in that. I don't think anyone really loves to hear more time spent necessarily, but I think that developing the skill set to make a process more efficient is absolutely something that we consider, but it's also a question to ask. Does that even make sense for this person? Is it, is it more appealing and doable and feasible for them to actually support their intake through meal prep and planning services. Maybe that's going to help them develop more consistency. It is all about figuring out how consistency can actually be established. Also looking at appropriate resources for developing their database. Where they, Where's their palate at? What kinds of foods do they like? And how can we work with their palate and meal and recipe options to expand their nutrient intake? That's super important, right? So skills looks at more than just cooking skills, right? It's it's a lot more and it's a, it is something that is developed over time. But With that, then we also have abilities. So abilities kind of looks at one's ability to adapt, troubleshoot, give themselves grace in the process. You know, so often we have this all or nothing thinking. So working on one's ability to be adaptive and to continue even when obstacles arise, I think is a huge part of this skill set that gets developed like through this pillar. Also an ability to prioritize needs, right? Like it kind of goes back into nutrition is just one part of health overall. It's, it's a decent part, but it is one. So having the ability to actually prioritize or not prioritize nutrition as much and understand what is the, the more important pillar that needs attention is really important because that allows someone to come back to nutrition down the line, or maybe even apply it with a little bit less of a super focus, right? Like it's kind of like almost taking some of the components of, of that concept of following the recipe that I talked about before, where like you have basic foundations of, of intake and you can apply that, um, to the best that you can on a day-to-day basis. And that is sort of how you can create a little bit more consistency without a huge focus. So for example, if I know I need three meals a day and I need to have a little bit of protein, carbs, and fat at each meal, maybe that can still be applied when someone is prioritizing another pillar of health without having those meals be what is absolutely nutrient dense and I don't know, maybe more aligned and 
quote unquote perfect for their own self and body, right? It's kind of getting by in that realm. And I think that that can be helpful too. So developing the ability to have the adaptability and the giving yourself grace and being able to troubleshoot obstacles, that's huge. So that's kind of part of the knowledge, skills, and abilities. So the magic of these three pillars is is really truly getting a hold of what is holding you back in your progress of improving health and relationship with food. Once you have a better idea, then you start to do the work. You start to untangle and rewire, and you start to build the database that works for you. So hope this was helpful for you guys. I love digging into these pillars, and I definitely recommend you do the same. It is a really interesting reflection. Definitely can help to have someone kind of probe and question the the appropriate inquiries and considerations, but I think everyone can probably dig in a little bit their own self to a degree. So please reach out if you have any other questions and I'll catch you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening today. If you found this information valuable, please share this episode and give it a review. They truly help a ton. If you want additional support and information, you can head over to my website, teresemartinezrd.com, where you can snag my free guide on how to improve your hunger signals, get on my email list for regular juicy content, or apply for the next round of my signature program, Restoring Nutrition Intuition. Otherwise, Instagram at teresemartinezrd or my Facebook group, Fed Fit and Fad Free Nutrition with Therese are always places for more content and support. Until next time.